Tanel and Jeremy Tanel. Streaming to you recorded from Seattle, Washington. Here. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Plowline Podcast. Today, February 2nd, 2nd, 3rd. Oh, 3rd. February 3rd. Yeah. You know, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Right. We Uh, should know about that. I I don't I don't care. I really don't. It's like a national holiday in the Uh, United States, you know? I know. We'll figure out how to contextualize it in the conversation. (laughs) Right. Right. This is Jerry Valarosa Tunnell, and we are here with David Jackson. David, what's up, man? Hey, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Don't mind our dog. We have her here, too. So yeah. um, you'll probably hear her walking around. But um, she, She's going to hang out at his feet. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, I'm over here. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things, Jay, that I don't think that we've, we've ever done when we, um, you know, did any of our podcasts is to actually talk about what, what Plowline Podcast is all about. And so, can I um, can I start with that first? I'm just going to go ahead and absolutely read um, read our profile on what we're looking at. And so, uh, conflict changes the way we see each other, how we communicate with each other, and how we organize around each other. It is a powerful rallying point for transformation. The uh, purpose of this podcast is to not resolve conflict but to work with others in transforming conflict into tools for changing our views, relationships, and sociopolitical structure. And I think that's one of the things that you and I have been talking about a lot is engaging in this kind of dialogue that can be conflicting, can be triggering for some, um, but to not, not if, it, if it touches you in a place where you feel hurt by it. I don't think they should look outside of themselves and blame other people, but for individuals to ask themselves the question on why is this bothering? And so I think a lot of our conversations that we've had in the past few podcasts was just that. And um, I thought I'd just kind of like bring that up first before we get into this next topic today which is uh gonna be very interesting yeah (laughs) i'm excited yeah so one of the you know one of the things that jerry and i have been trying to explore is um is this concept of colonization and Mm -hmm. um european colonization is the current colonization structure we're in um and it has very specific motifs it has very specific um actions associated with it in order to colonize another group another people um um, it's also happened before Mm -hmm. um but uh but our historical record um uh you know like we can really dive in and analyze um where we're at uh as uh as a nation because it still deeply affects us um we are approximately 150 years on from emancipation, um, but we are, I think you were just saying, we are 400 years from the <laughs> first 
um, the first ship that landed in Jamestown with slaves. Would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, David, can you introduce yourself and all that other good stuff so our listeners know exactly who you are? Good idea. Sure. Um, I'm David Jackson. I am a a thinker, a scholar, a business person, uh, originally hailing from uh, Houston, Texas. Um, Had the privilege of uh, studying at uh, Howard University and spent uh, about a full 10 years in DC. And so, um, interesting side note about um, the way I experience um, my identity is by looking at the cities in which I've lived. I've lived in uh, DC, Chicago, Boston, New York, and have traveled globally. And then I've spent the last uh, 13 years approximately uh, here in Seattle. And the way in which we would celebrate and embrace. Um, Blackness, if you will, if that's how we're describing it today, um, is markedly different on the East Coast and in the South than we do here. And so it's a very interesting um, uh, existence to have seen yourself through both local and national and globalized actually be in Seattle. Um, But uh, professionally, I am a um, corporate leader, a human resource executive. I've, uh, you know, finished my doctorate in uh, June, uh, holding an MBA as well. Congratulations! Thank you. That is an enormous uh, amount of work. Yes, and soon, Jerry, <laughs> you're going to join the one percent, right? Yes, um, a different one yes. percent. A different one percent. <laughs> this one percent pays a lot of money. That's <laughs> true. That's true. This one does. Um, but also, um, really excited about um, you know uh, both teaching at the at Seattle University as well as really beginning to do some additional um, research and writing around really this broader concept of not so much um, dismantling whiteness or advancing um, otherness, but in a really uh, more fundamental way of what does it mean to uh, construct the society in which we wish to live from now going forward. Mm. And what is that work and how do we do it? And it's some very tough work. It's a lot of conversations. It's a lot of reflection. It's a lot of accountability. But also, to me, it is giving yourself license to do what we tell ourselves in a number of different ways. When we're trying to lose weight, when we're trying to get into a new relationship, or we're trying to, um, do anything that is a market departure from what we're doing now, which is how do you stop the patterns? How do you create the new behaviors? How do you create the new levels of understanding that are necessary to achieve the thing, to achieve the state, to achieve the goal that you want? So if you're trying to lose weight, you can't, you know, stock your house with a bunch of ding-dongs and cookies and, <laughs> and, and go out. Now, you can do that. The reality right. is one of two things will happen. Either you will not lose weight or you will continue to tell yourself that you're on a diet when reality belies the fact. Yes. And so, but the reality is you're not going to achieve it. So how do we do this work, particularly when we're talking about evolving and building a society that is egalitarian and fair and balanced and just? So. Awesome. A little bit about me. That's great. That's exactly the kind of stuff we 
dig into. <laughs> yes. Okay. Exactly. exactly. Well, uh, <laughs> let's start with um, let's start with uh, with what you were talking about before um, the acknowledgement that uh, of four hundred years of the of slave trade, um, mm-hmm. and I, I think you said that Congress just. Uh, um, can you go into that? Can you elaborate? Yeah, um, I, I I was looking a few things up, and uh, I don't remember the specific um, House resolution, but the House passed um, resolution, um, uh, an act that um, recognizes uh, 2019 as the 400th year point in which um, uh, the the first slave ship uh, was noted to have arrived in Jamestown. Yeah. And when you think about that, when you think about that cumulative history of 400 years, it places into context, I think, the contemporary conversations that we're having around, um, you know, diversity, inclusion, race and equity. Um, My friends have often laughed, as I've said, I find it interesting that the um, first letters of these terms of art that we use for our framework of diversity, inclusion, race, and equity actually spell the word dire. Yes. <laughs> um, and so if you take that as a point of departure, you can begin to to really kind of start to grapple with the fact that we're not talking about a 50-year history going back to the civil rights movement. We're not talking about going back to 19, you know, 54, where we're, you know, 52 and 54, when we're looking at sit-ins and Brown v. Board of Education and, you know, Sweat versus Painter and all those things. We're not talking about going to, you know, even say reconstruction when many of the current myths around of whiteness and blackness and otherness are constructed, or even the myth around Thanksgiving was constructed. We're not talking about you know, 1776, when the nation, you know, rose up and declared its independence. We're talking about going back to a point in time in which there were fundamental choices that were made, not by the people who are here today, but by people who had very different motives and very different expectations of what the world would look like that informed that. But then that's not even the start. You have to go back even further because the history of this country actually starts around 1572 um, uh, with the the first colonial ships coming here to discover. Mm -hmm. And so you have to go back to those earliest points of Roanoke. You have to go back to, you know, the the founding of Jamestown, which is a second real effort that happened some 20 or 30, about 20 or so years later. But then, even when you think about that, you have to take it even further back (laughs) to what it means to have actually, quote, discovered this new world. And so those core documents, starting in the capitals of Europe, whether it was in Spain or England or even France, par se Rome, when you have the origin of the doctrine of discovery. Yes. So actually think about the idea that there, was, there were groups of people who determined that because they had acquired the engineering expertise to transverse the, one of the largest bodies of water that they had known at that point to 
use the stars to navigate themselves across the sea to a new world to be somehow told that anything you find, you can claim in the name of your sovereign and any peoples that you find, you can claim as subjects of that sovereign. So I just want you to think that imagine (laughs) as I came into your home today, if I operated with that doctrine of discovery, you know, right. you know, Jerry came outside and was like, hey, how you doing? Hey, I came in to pet the dog and we had a good time. And I said, you know, this is a lovely house. Thank you. <laughs> you all did such a lovely job. Thank you. Now, would you mind making me some eggs? Would you mind going to clean up? And I'm just going to go to my, the, the idea that somehow that would be acceptable or that would be permissible it's foreign to us, yes. given what we know about who we are today. Right. But that's what was happening. And that doctrine, that perspective that a sovereign could be empowered to grant the power of a explorer to subjugate people that they interacted with on the basis of a statement mm-hmm. from another person in this point the Pope, it gave us that ability to create this doctrine. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. when we start talking about our root causes and and this work, we have to be willing to go into our history. We have to be willing to excavate all of those assumptions because to get to the point you're making about the hard conversations, the Mm -hmm. conflict, that is the root of conflict. That is how we're going to understand it. So yep. if the idea of discovery is one of the root causes of what has brought us to this point, what is our reconciliation with that? Mm-hmm. How do we begin to say, you know what? Yeah, you could have gone and you know, traveled the world and found something new, but that doesn't mean you discovered it. Right. Right. You you may have just caught up. Yeah. Yeah. But but you didn't discover it. And so the work that we're talking about of coming together starts with what I believe is a return to critical thinking, which is the willingness to challenge fundamental assumptions and also the willingness to explore alternatives. Um, we'll talk about some of this stuff a little bit later, but that's just where I sit with this. Right, you know? right. And I think <clears throat> that's, a, that's the ability to step in between those times, those, um, those uh, you know, systems that's been created. You know, I mean, I, I, see that, I see that a lot, you know, in regards to um, the intersections that we cross, the... Um, and even how we are in relationship with our environment. You know, I always share the story of when my mother, who's passed now, but when she came to uh, Seattle for the first time, and I'm picking her up, and we're walking through the garage at SeaTac, and she looks at me and she's like, whoa, Seattle, they waste a lot of energy. And I'm like, what do you... (laughs) why mom and she was like why do they have the air conditioning on in the parking lot and at first i was like she ain't that old (laughs) you know at that time but 
I realize that she's never felt on her skin what it was like to be in 50 degree weather, except for when she's sitting in front of an air condition <laughs> in Hawaii. And so that's the only relevance that she had in regards to being cold. And so if we, if, if we just think about appearing at that moment, people would have thought that my mom was crazy if they didn't really know the history and the story. And so it's all about going deeper. Mm-hmm. And I think in that space is where we have um, a lot of the change. I think that's where we can be conflicted between what we know, what we think we know, what we should know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to be able to have that dialogue, I feel, especially coming in from Hawaii, I feel that's the kind of aloha that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Aloha is love and compassion and empathy and grace and mercy. That's, that's aloha. That's what aloha means. And the aloha that, that I talk about in regards to dialogue is the, um, you know, just the uh, derivative of two words, alo mm-hmm. meaning front and ha meaning breath, meaning that when we're when we're sharing our stories like this, whether it's conflicting or not, our ability to have that kind of love and compassion and deep listening with one another, I think it can shift our paradigm and shift the way we see things to where we can ask more questions mm-hmm. and we can inquire more and not stop there. Mm-hmm. Like you said, I mean, I find myself that I can get so caught up with what's happening today that I don't look, especially, you know, with our social issues, I don't look at what caused it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I just, I can find myself saying, yeah, you know, if it wasn't for the white people doing this, I wouldn't be here. And then it's casting blame. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that you and I have talked about, and I brought it up, you know, and Jeremy and I have talked about is being called white that Mm -hmm. if we if you and i you know african-american and pacific islander if we see ourselves as people of color Mm -hmm. and then we see jeremy as a white person how are we are still perpetuating that us and them Mm -hmm. by saying people of color and white Mm -hmm. and i know i know david i know that there are going to be people out there they're going to be like we struggle with internalized racism. <laughs> we struggle with internalized racism because we are against people who look like us. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's, not, it's not that at all. It's not that at all. I think it's, it's definitely the ability to have this kind of conversation and go deep. So I appreciate you talking about the history and in order for us to understand where we are right now we've got to be able to look back way back well and the reason i and the reason i um have kind of arrived at this point is that i've come to understand that the conversation the challenge that we have in this work around creating the world in which we would like to live in We've always centered this conversation around otherness and mm-hmm. other than white. Mm. Right. And 
there have been cottage industries set up there are academic majors there's an entire set of you know protocols around um the the work of understanding you know what is this otherness you know you know there's white and then there's you know everything else but then to me that changes and it actually is an inversion of the issue that we really should be dealing with um if we accept that um, this nation was discovered, right, uh, from European capitals, and if we just take a look at those societies as they were intact, as they were, they were fairly homogenous yes. in their composition. So the idea that somehow whiteness existed within those societies that were fairly homogenous would not make sense. None at all. Because it would be like me looking at another black person and saying, oh, you're white. It's like it, the, the concept and the construct of everything that would go with that as we know it today would not make sense in a truly homogenous society. And so the only way you could have that construct occur would be by introducing um, others, yeah, non-whites. Mm -hmm. But then you had to not just have the people there in terms of contrast. You also had to construct some level of perspective about that. But again, if you go back to the homogenous communities that were based in Europe, the distinctions that we have in society just didn't come up because we introduced color. Yeah. <clears throat> There's right. always been social stratification. Always. There's always yeah. been economic stratification. And so then you go back into, oh, so the most no most obvious ones are, you know, the nobility versus the commoners. You then have, you know, the serfs versus in the in the feudal systems. We have always come up with a way to socially stratify societies, whether they were homogenous or not. And so part of what we have to deal with when we go back to dealing with the origins and trying to address our present day is ask ourselves, what are the social constructs that were built to enable mm -hmm. whiteness? Yes. And what are those social constructs that need to be dismantled in order for society to move forward. That doesn't mean that we're not still going to recognize our differences, but what it does mean is that we're going to disempower the differences from policy, from access, from justice, from any other resource allocation systems on the basis of the color difference. And, and to me, that's important because you have to go back to those homogenous societies. And that's where some of the original hurt occurs. Yes. You know, if you think about it, you know, why are Americans so enamored with British accents? Mm -hmm. Why do we, you know, consistently look? And it's because at some level there was this forced removal. <clears throat> and, and we don't. And, and, and I think if you really want to understand in, uh, in, a, in a way what's happening in the U.S., 
You have to understand what's happening within white communities and what has historically been happening in white communities and why this present moment is so frightening. Those communities in the 15 and 1600s, and really starting with you know, the 1400s, began looking at economic differences. And the people who were those first, quote, settlers of the New World, those were the folks who were viewed as um, disposable. Those are people who were viewed as uh, not having the proper breeding, the proper stock. And so Europe and many of those capitals sought to dispose of those people. Mm -hmm. They sought to, you know, remove, you know, the poor, the urchin, the drunkard, you know, the, the loose women. They sought to cleanse themselves of all of these issues. And because they had discovered this new world, they actually needed people to go and, you know, essentially clean it up and get it ready so the nobility to, could come over. So those people were exported. Those people were disposed of. And that forced separation is what occurred. This is why that 400-year point becomes important. That forced separation occurred 150 years prior to the, the arrival of the first ships in Jamestown. Yeah. The arrival of the first slave ships in Jamestown was controversial, not because there were Africans that were kidnapped and and sent through, you know, a nightmare crossing uh, of a middle passage. It was controversial because it was a question of how do you introduce free labor into a constructed society of people who are already viewed as not being um, willing to work, willing to commit. And what do you do with that if you have free labor and you have people who are already here? That was the inherent controversy. That was the inherent issue. And so you have to be willing to go into that particular conversation to understand, oh, okay, this was not just about let's go find some, uh, some, some First Nations people to subjugate or let's go find some uh, some Africans to subjugate and bring them here. This was about actually finding a labor source and then having that labor source to the side um, at that point, um, poor whites who were disposed of. And how do you actually integrate those into this one society? Yeah. And so when you actually understand that, and that was a question that was plaguing the nobility at that time, today, that's a very similar question that we're dealing with today. Mm -hmm. How do you have, how do you admit in an immigration system or, or in our country, um, uh, you know, folks from Latin America who are, you know, coming out of, 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 of countries that are wrought with violence, who simply want asylum? How do you bring them into a country in which we still haven't dealt with the fact that we have white poverty? We can't even say the word white poverty yeah. with a straight face in this country. but. That's the real issue we're dealing with. How do you actually have people in rural um, South, in Appalachia, in the Rust Belt, in the upper Midwest, who are struggling, who are dying under the weight of this system of whiteness that has told them that 
You have a privileged level of access, yet their daily lives show them no privilege. Right. It shows them no access. It shows them as having nothing. How do you actually maintain that? That is what is at the root of all of this social angst that we're dealing with. And the only thing that has ever worked, that has ever been shown to work, is to show the black, the brown, the other as the enemy. Create another. Yeah. And so this is about origin. This is about why did we create this perspective of whiteness? We did it because it was one of the easiest points of demarcation that we could have in a society where previously I couldn't tell if we were all white, who was who, unless we got into economics and clothing and social status. But now if it was easy to identify on the basis of skin color, then it makes it easy to do any other subjugation. Yeah. So it's a hard thing to consider. One of the things that um, one of the things that Jerry and I have been discussing yesterday, we were talking about it was this concept that uh, I have a tendency to want to go back to both history, but also science um, as a means of um, of having a dialogue on on this subject, because it gives a logical, definitive methodology for for conversing, for, mm-hmm. for having this. And 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 I have to acknowledge that it also removes the emotion uh, out of it. And the the subject of racism, the subject of, uh, you know, of oppression has a lot of emotion in it for those that have experienced um uh racism and oppression and from those that have benefited from it mm-hmm. both of them are emotionally attached to it and so um and so i have to acknowledge that i i'm very well aware that that um that when i when i talk about these things in this manner that that it is removing the emotion but that's not to negate the emotion and um uh you know in the 18th century um we came up with the uh, taxonomic um, structure the the method for taking all bio- biological life on the planet and putting it into a class system and uh, we still use it today and it's become much more um, refined and it starts with um, you know it, it starts with identifying the way cell structures work and 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 it goes all the way down to whether or not they've got scales or fur or they lay eggs or they have live birth or they have hooves and those you know mm-hmm. and and it but it goes all the way down to species mm-hmm. and uh and in our species there is one species one it's homo sapien period that's it and so this concept of race uh, underneath species there isn't a new classification called race it stops at species and so this idea of race is a social construct and it's a social construct that we created in order to as you said um create the other and um and uh originally the idea of race uh, especially in in Europe was to denote um region or language but eventually it became uh, the color of one's skin and um the other thing that that this conversation makes me kind of think about is that's a method of colonization is to go into um, a place that you want to take as yours to turn the indigenous people from the indigenous people of that land to another and and in doing mm-hmm. so you 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 remove them, and that's what we did. That's what we did. We removed them.
from the ability to navigate the system in which we've created, which um, uh, as well as the people that we enslaved and brought over, we remove them from the ability to navigate these these things easily. Uh, and if you look like me, if you talk like me, um, if you're a white heterosexual um, male, and then you put on top of that class, if I if I were to come from a wealthy family, um, if you take these things, I can navigate the system very well. Um, you take away a certain amount of class, I can still navigate this fairly well. I came from a middle class to an upper middle class home. Um, you know, I, I, I'm able to do that. You begin ticking away those things um, further, and you, you end up with an individual who has a very difficult time navigating the system in which we live and breathe. So what's, what's interesting is, <clears throat> I would argue that I don't, think you, I, I don't think you make it more difficult for a person to navigate this system. I think you actually make the navigation fairer. Okay. Um, they're, uh, they're, uh, one of my um, favorite uh, political theorists and uh, philosophers uh, is John Rawls. And um, he gained a significant level of prominence um, in the 60s, um, 50s and 60s, when he was doing his writing. Um, and from a contemporary ethics standpoint, his seminal work was called The Theory of Justice. Mm -hmm. And Rawls posited that if we did not know who we would be in a world, he asked the question, what type of world would we create? If we didn't know that we were who we were at this point, if we could, as he described it, go into a veil of ignorance and construct a society. He asked, what type of society would we construct? And so what he means by this veil of ignorance is, if you didn't know, as you were just speaking, that you were a white middle-class male who was able to enjoy a level of privilege um, on the basis of skin color, what type of world would you create? If you knew that the choices were the choices of the world, that you could be a black trans uh, woman living in, you know, L.A., or that you could be a First Nations person living in rural Montana, or you could be an Aboriginal person living in the outback of Australia, or if you were going to be, you know, an Asian child living somewhere, if you were going to be, you know, a, an Arctic woman. If you didn't know what type of outcome your life would hold, what type of society, if you were asked to participate in the construction of a fair and just world, what type of world would you create? And so Rawls actually framed this as entering into the veil of ignorance. What he said is, if you didn't know what station in life you would occupy, you likely would create a world in which there was opportunity. There was the ability to transcend one's um, station in life, that you would want there to be some level of equal justice that did not um, rely on skin color, that you would want to have education and access, and that you would want to have a more fair and economic system. 
And so what was fascinating about that is the idea of, and this goes to your point of how do we get there? Part of the challenge we have is that we do this work in our current mindset. Mm -hmm. And what Rawls asked us to do was to suspend our understanding of reality, to take a generative step into a space where if we didn't know who we are today, what type of society would we create that we would have to inhabit? We don't ask ourselves those questions anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, I started my remarks by saying this requires critical thinking. Yeah. This requires a level of reflection and introspection that is absolutely critical if we are going to dismantle these systems. It is not just about dismantling whiteness. It's about dismantling patriarchy. It's about moving forward in terms of equal access um, and egalitarian access. It's about dismantling economic dominance. It's about you know dismantling uh, a level of, of subjugation based on a number of other harms that we can't even begin to talk about. Yeah. That's what this work is. And one of the things that, uh, that I had mentioned last week in our podcast was um, there's a myth that, um, that somehow um, people of European descent, people of, people of uh, you know, white people would have to lose something mm -hmm. in order for others to gain something. That's mm -hmm. a myth. Yep. That's not what we're talking about. Right. What, we're, what, what you are proposing is... Um, and what Rawls appears to be proposing is uh, basically Buckminster Fuller's um, mm -hmm. quote, which is, right. if you want to just, you know, don't worry about dismantling the current system, you know, imagine a new system. Mm -hmm. Right, and, right. Uh, that's where the uh, creative thinking comes mm -hmm. in, yeah. right, is being able to creatively think of how to create a new world. But then again, we would have to get into the critical part of it on dismantling it. How do mm -hmm. we... How do we critically dismantle it so then that way we can build something that will be beneficial? To do we need to dismantle it? Oh, I, oh, I absolutely think we do. Yeah. Um, and it's easier said than done. But I think the reality of the uh, of our of our current state necessitates it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I was listening to a um, a lecture um, earlier on uh, this morning, trying to get myself in the mindset, and um, the, the speaker said that, you know, that our frameworks that we use in the work of, you know, equity, diversity, mm -hmm. inclusion, and equity, those are insufficient. Right. Because if we're talking about diversifying, that word simply means we're just trying to add something into this paradigm that we're not addressing. Yeah. If we're trying to, um, you know, deal with inclusion. That means that we're trying to include a bit more into this paradigm that we're not addressing. So is it that we really want to diversify whiteness, which is on itself is kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> kind of crazy. Yeah. Are we trying to include more into whiteness, which again, this is oxymoron, or are we actually trying to uh, uh, transcend it? And it's not to your point, it's not transcending it to the detriment of any uh, group right, or to right. the advantage of any group is simply to free us all 
Right. I mean, I think one of the scariest things, and this is the thing that I, and this is where having lived in Seattle probably now for 13 years, I found myself becoming uh, more and more impatient with uh, kind of the, the, the motif of liberalism mm-hmm. and progressive behavior here. Uh, because in a, in a very real way, it's self-indulgent. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, you know, and you can see it, you know, when we, and again, I, I look at this past election and everyone was saying, oh, well, you know, I can't see how people, you know, voted for, you know, this man and he's horrible. I'm like, yeah, I can understand that. But you also have to understand that 60 million people voted for him. Yep. Six. So about you know sixty three or sixty five million voted for Clinton, and about sixty million voted for Trump. And so at the end of the day, you may not like the choice, right? Yeah. But what you can't say is that sixty million people are wrong, right? You right. cannot say that. Sixty million people saw the world differently. That's right. And if we don't take the opportunity to understand what they were seeing. Mm-hmm. Then we are as culpable for whatever happens than whoever was elected. Now, what were they seeing? They were seeing a world in which they legitimately can say that we don't hear ourselves reflected in society. Yeah. They were hearing a world where they were being told that if they didn't believe in climate change and if they didn't address it from the standpoint of a global imperative, that they were somehow uh, intellectually inferior, rich, stupid, (laughs) that they were not uh, willing to do the work, that somehow they were behind. How do you how do you as a. Quote progressive person say that how, how how do you ascribe virtue to yourself because you can consider that deforestation is an issue that we should be concerned about or the rising levels of the ocean is something that we should be concerned about and yet tangibly the people that you need to agree with who sit in poverty in rural mississippi in tennessee in Ohio, in Missouri, in Missouri, yeah. mm-hmm. you think nothing about them. Mm-hmm. So the idea that somehow if those voters don't hold that value, they are somehow intellectually inferior to you. You're perpetuating the very thing that is dividing us. Yes. And so there's something that those of us who aspire to be, you know, either, you know, the intellectuals or the scholars. We have to say stop that. We're 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 not, we can no longer hold that as a point of 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 either elevation because right. you can't. It's right. not right, right. And that's what divides us. So I've gotten to the point. And I've said I don't want to hear anyone talk about global warming in uh, in the rest of the world if you're not also talking about economic viability. In Charleston, West Virginia. Yes. Yeah. I don't want to yeah. hear you talk about, uh, you know, uh, national security on our southern border if you don't see the decline in our educational system as a national security threat. Right. Because <laughs> I can tell you, as an HR uh, executive over the years, 
When I was working with an organization to actually open new plants, I didn't look at whether the border was secure. I looked at the quality of the education. We made decisions based on regionality. We made decisions on based on you know accent or a lot of other things. And we made different choices based on where we saw the available labor market. Mm-hmm. And so when you have companies that have the economic resources making those decisions in a country where we've now said, oh, the local standards of education are what should suffice in a competitive world where education is a national standard, where the entire nation stops at one time to take an exam and it determines whether you get into the school or whether you go to a trade or what have you. You can no longer sit back on your haunches and say, oh, we are an exceptional nation. Yeah, right. <laughs> you, you, you can't do that. and so. Right. You have to be willing to embrace this nation and its issues and our people holistically. And I don't think you do it by ascribing to a level of virtue simply because you think the idea is is warranted, especially because it makes you feel better. Those 60 million people who did not see the outcome of that election the same way have valid points. We have to look at them, but we also have to add to that conversation Mm -hmm. and we have to make sure that they understand that they are just as much as being subjugated. They're being just as used as pawns as the folks who are visibly different from them. Right. Right. And that there's more that unites us than divides us, which is why actually King was moving in that direction. That's exactly right. About economic empowerment and bringing us together in that respect. And that's how you do it. But you you have to stop. I think we and in, in this space have to stop this virtuous of thinking that we hold virtue because we can consider these points. Right. right. Yeah. Right. And I, I think uh, I think that. Uh, I very much have been a part of that um, of that Seattle progressive um, mindset. And I remember very specifically sitting in a restaurant right before the uh, right before the election in downtown Puyallup with uh, two coworkers at the time, and um, and being kind of loud um, and saying um, saying you know there is no way this guy's going to win because they were both going to vote for him, and um, and I and and me saying look I I don't want to vote for her either you know but there's no way this guy's going to win. And people turning around and looking at me, just shaking their heads like, you're an idiot. He's going to win. And, uh, and I, remember, I remember sitting in here watching TV and, uh, and the polls came in and he was elected. And the very first thought I went to was that conversation in that restaurant. And I thought, wow, wow, I was wrong. And um, a month or two later, I shut off my Facebook mm-hmm. and I was just like, no, this is... I, I'm 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 one of those people sitting in a silo. Your point is the point, I believe, um, which is, you know, as as you, we're going through this conversation, thinking about, uh, you know, those those sixty million people that that voted for him, um, and you know, and I'm thinking to myself, all right, well, what do we do? You know, how do we, you know, how do we address their concerns, their economic status, their and then I and then you you made that point, which I think is the point, which is 
maybe it's not maybe that stuff's not fixable in our current circumstances but but the reality and, and the realization is is that the oppression we're all living under needs to be recognized mm-hmm. the veil of whiteness in which we were all living under mm-hmm. needs to be acknowledged um my our nephew um uh, loves to call and um and chat about these issues and he's going to community college in in sacramento right now he grew up in rural california i was born there as well um it is predominantly um european american mm-hmm. and um and um we are having these ongoing conversations about about whiteness and about culture and about ethnicity and um and this concept he's in the, he's in a course right now where where it's being discussed and this concept where his fellow students are saying when when asked what is your ethnicity well it's white um you know well you know what is your you know what is your country of origin well it's america this is a falsehood this is an illusion and i find that to be very scary i find it very scary that uh that people who look like me identify themselves ethnically as white mm-hmm. because it's not an ethnicity mm-hmm. and um and it keeps them trapped especially those from small rural california and missouri and tennessee it keeps them trapped mm-hmm. in this in this oppression in which we were all there well i think part of uh the the challenge is that we don't celebrate um our origin stories mm-hmm. um which again is why i think this um 400 year um year of return is very significant um and in fact um it 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 leads me to really understand what is it that we think we are celebrating when we talk about our race and our heritage you know this is black history month and so i find it interesting that in the world in which we are now quote celebrating ourselves and you know liberals and progressives you know pat ourselves in the back by using the word people of color and i was like i'm confused and how the hell do you get to black history month if if, if, if this is this people of color month i, I don't think so um and i'll tell you about my complete rejection of poc in a moment but um but i think the point you're raising is you know it, it's fundamental because at the at the root of some of the um opposition to black history month is this question of well wait a minute what about white history month well you know in a way you could majoritively say well or you know what about white history is like well you know we don't have a white you know museum it's like well yeah you do it's called the smithsonian yeah <laughs> you know? right um but but it, it it is a legitimate question and it's and i think it's written um in a way that when you have a country that was um over the years so homogenized around race you have literally kind of almost bred out the perspective of national origin mm-hmm. and so when you had you know there, i don't know if you've seen um the movie gangs of new york oh yeah um yes. one of my favorite lines yes. is in that movie is um 
uh, one of the main characters um, says that uh, talking about new immigrants coming to the country. And he says, you know, look at them, you know, um, and they were very crass at that point. And again, from a homogenized place, they were saying, you know, look at this country now. You have, you know, an Irish nigger that will do a job for a nickel that a nigger would do for a dime that a white man used to get paid a quarter for. So when, when you begin to kind of hear those types of things and they are rooted in some level of historical accuracy, the construct of whiteness as a race versus your origin of Scottish American, Irish American, Italian American, you know, Swedish American, Nordic American, those constructs are not there. And so because those constructs are not there, the only thing you're left with is this kind of homogenized notion of American yep. that is really much more of the hyphen as opposed to who we are. Mm. And so it, it becomes, and so I think there is, when we talk about how do you actually, you know, kind of create paths forward, I think a path forward is to embrace origin. To say that, you know, you are Hawaiian American, even get, getting very specific if you want to, you know, saying not just Pacific Island, because it's like, you know, thousands of right. islands. And I'm like, <laughs> right. well, which one? What shores did your people come from? <laughs> right. Like, like, do you not know? <laughs> you know? But again, you know, and, and again, you know, um, but again, you, you start there. But those are the things that I think we have in many respects denied white Americans, European Americans in this country, which is to say, celebrate your heritage. Yes. You know, but then, you know, because that's why, you know, if you think about it, you know, Chicago, you have, you know, St. Patrick's Day and, you know, right. and, you know, I mean, in New York, in those places, but even then, um, you have Polish holidays, you know, yeah. you know, Polanski Day in Chicago, you have lots of holidays. The richness of our national heritages is what has made this country, but what has destroyed this country is the erasure of our national origin. Yes. And we've replaced the national origin with this construct of race that continues to divide us. Um, it's really briefly on the personal color thing, and um, Jerry knows this. I personally can't stand the, the construct or the word or the phrase person or people of color. I think it is the most insulting and mm -hmm. the most um, belittling thing that you can do. And Jerry helped me and she gave me this phrase, which is it introduces a level of ethnic ambiguity. Yes. That is, and again, this is what, quote, progressives, liberals have said, oh, well, you know, well, we can't, you know, we have to find a way of being much more inclusive. So we're going to be a person of color. Really? Yeah. Well, well, exactly which color am I? Right. And more importantly, if we're saying you're a person of color, the last time I checked, white was a color. Yeah. Right. But somehow, right. if we're I prefer using, tawny gold. Right. I, I understand <laughs> that you do prefer tawny gold, which is good. Um, but the idea that somehow the erasure of who we are is to embrace our, uh, or to sink our, our, our commonality is insulting. Now, let's actually take it back to a historical point. When you have people who were African, this is take within the, the context of, those, of the, the African presence in this, who were African, who had 
lived in a homogenous society who may have been, you know, different levels. You could have been, you know, just a regular travel person. You could have been a member of royalty, whatever. You then go into being nothing but chattel. Mm. You then are brought into a system where you are dehumanized. Your entire uh, perspective is removed. You then go through where you are nothing but, you know, you know, you're an X, you're a mark, you are a number on a ledger, you are, you know, boy, gal, nigga, whatever it is. You then go through a period where you are Negro, Negro, Negro. Then you arrive at a point where you are still, you know, nigga, Negro, color, whatever. Then you get to a point where, okay, you're colored. Then you arrive from, say, the, you know, kind of the 1900s to, you know, the mid 50s where you're colored. Then you get to a point where you're putting up signs that say colored white. Mm -hmm. And that was on fountains. Now, to contextualize this, my mother was born in 1946. So I know she grew up in this American context, seeing the words colored and white on bathrooms, on fountains, because that was the era in which she grew up in. So then if you evolve that into black, and then you evolve that into Afro, and then you evolve that into African, and all of those are hyphened to America, tell me how does progress show itself when in 2019, after that entire arc of history, you're now telling me that I should be happy with being ambiguous. Yeah. <laughs> It is the most insulting and pejorative thing that we can do to ourselves, yet we do it because the very point of this entire podcast is we're not willing to step into the critical conversation. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of work to do. And so folks just know um, they don't use POC <laughs> around me. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> so well said you know and if you are a person of european descent let's have a long conversation about you being white mm -hmm. you know um we are uh reaching a conclusion point to uh this week's podcast david where can people find you Ah, uh, that's an interesting question uh <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, o. David Jackson. Um, you know, friends of mine are on Facebook. Um, you know, I um, have founded my own uh, consulting practice, Jacks Strategic Partners. Um, it's uh, www.jaxxsp.com, uh, and uh, feel free to reach out. Awesome. Is awesome. Thank you so much. I knew I knew when I invited David that we were going to get kind of deep, amazing conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much. I am I you know, I, I gotta say, I am so honored and privileged that um we walked into each other's lives. We were supposed to have yes. an hour meeting, which mm -hmm. ended up to be about three or four mm -hmm. <laughs> by the time we were done. <laughs> so well, I mean, and I, and I think that happened for a couple of reasons. One, um, just because you're an incredible person, and <laughs> I like to think I'm an incredible person. So when you put the two of us together, you it's get magic. a lot of incredibleness. Right, you get magic. <laughs> uh, but also, there was, um, I think, you know, from the academic perspective, right. you know, we cre we, we clicked, um, you know, uh, people in common. Um, but I think it was the work, and you know, uh, I was blown away by your research 
uh, of Aloha, uh, in part because I've been privileged to spend uh, a number of years um, enjoying and visiting and getting to know the Hawaiian islands and uh, the Hawaiian culture. And as someone who who goes and does not uh, stay in kind of the populous areas, but actually <laughs> nice. hangs out with the locals. <laughs> right. And, you know, I tell people where I go, they're like, wait, <laughs> you, you hang out on, you know, the wine they saw? Yeah, yeah. You know, That's the best side of the island. <laughs> you know, you exactly, know it, it's different. Exactly. But, you know, there, there is, there's a richness of culture. And, and what I loved about your work in Aloha, and we talked about this, um, it fits so nicely with um, some of the other um, uh, culturally expansive work. Um, that we've seen, whether it is, um, you know, the work of the First Nations cultures, yeah, whether it's African absolutely. cultures, being able to understand the context in which the Hawaiian culture um, grounds itself was exciting to me. And so I, I thought the research was absolutely fabulous. Thank you. It's a lot. There's still a lot more, mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot more. It's, it's never, it's never done. And, you know, one of, one of the things that I always share is, you know, aloha is, it's, um, it's an action. Mm -hmm. It's an action. It's, uh, we can come up with all of these beautiful words on what aloha means, but, you know, I think it's really how, how you live. Mm -hmm. And it extends beyond the horizons of Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And I feel that it interconnects all of us. So thank you for recognizing that. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us again. Uh, if you, uh, as of right now, the Plowline podcast is on SoundCloud, and um, and we will be uh, distributing out to all other podcast mediums sh uh, shortly. But we want to get a few more under our belt. You can find uh, Jerry at. You can find me at um, www.co3co the number three consulting dot net. I'm also on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn as well. And um, please, we do encourage um, listeners, if you have any questions or comments, concerns, whatever, you know, just uh, hit us up on um, Plowline, on the Plowline uh, Facebook page, which is? Uh, it's facebook.com backslash Plowline. You can also reach us at Plowline at gmail.com. Thank you again so much, and David, sincere pleasure having you here. Thank you. Thank you, guys. This Thank was you. fun. Aloha. Aloha. Mahalo. Mahalo. <laughs>